Thank you guys so much for joining us today. My name is BJ Forguson, and uh, I get to be one of the pastors here on staff uh, at Austin Oaks Church, and, and, and we are so thankful that you are here. And um, as you know, this has been a, a, an interesting week here in our lives. We've, we, we've had some difficult things happening here in Texas. To, uh, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. We had celebrations of graduation and, and celebrating what God has done in that, and and at the end of the day, it's, it's just a reminder that, that we are not in control, that, that this world is a broken and messed up place and that there is darkness here in this world. And, and we got to gather on Thursday night to pray, and it, it wasn't in response to anything. It was just scheduled out, and it was in the kindness of the Lord that we were able to gather together. And we, we were remembering that, the, that there is darkness in the world, but that Jesus came into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome him. And so we are here today to remember that. We are simply about Jesus. In everything we want to do, we want to help people meet, know, and follow him. And we think that when that happens, it changes everything. And when Jesus came into the world and he established his, his plan for the world, and, and then he sent the people out, he sent them out to build his church. And so that's where we are today. We are, we are continuing on to look at, at the life that Jesus wanted his church to be about. And, and, and so we have this series called Build Your Church that's looking through the book of Acts. And, and, and we've been able to hear from people, uh, not just in our church, but in other churches around the area and, and hearing what God's doing in Rwanda and hearing what God's doing in Ukraine and, and, and hearing what God is doing around Austin. And today we get to continue that to share about how God is building his church and the message that God is using to build his church, not just here, but in other places. And today we get the, the, the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Rusty Hayes, who's a pastor of Renovation Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He is a dear friend of uh, Pastor Brandon, who is on sabbatical right now. And, and they met through the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is what Austin Oaks Church, the denomination that we are. And we get to hear uh, what, what God is doing in his life, and we get to see how, how God is building his church by look, continuing to look at the book of Acts. And so if you would do me a favor and give Dr. Hayes a, a, a big round of applause and welcome him on up here. Hey brother. Yeah. <laughs> well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church, and happy Memorial Day. To all of you, I want to begin by saying I love Texas. Uh, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, got a master's in theology from there, and spent five years of my life uh, in Texas. My uh, oldest child, my first child, was born at Baylor Hospital in Dallas. My sister went to Baylor. I have a brother that's a pastor in Corsicana. He's not as good looking as me, but he's a pastor, and we'll, we'll take that. And uh, I just love Texas. I have so many memories of Texas. I also grew up just across the border of Texas in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Anybody from Louisiana here this morning? Okay, I see a few hands out there. Who that? Go, go Tigers. Hey, I know that family right there. So, hey, you know what it means that uh, I'm a Cajun? It means that Y'all may not learn anything from this sermon, but we're going to have a good time, y'all. We're going to have a good time. Listen, several months ago, um, Pastor Brandon called me in Colorado, and he asked if I could preach this weekend. And at first, I was thinking, I don't know that I can do that. Uh, we just planted a church a year and a half ago. It's doing very well. God has really blessed it. But I'm the only pastor on my staff. And I'm also a high school football coach at a local high school, a championship team, very rigorous program. And uh, we have just started our summer practice schedule, but I thought about it and uh, I love your pastor, Brandon, so much that I decided to, to help him out during his sabbatical. Uh, we met through the EFCA. I pastored a church in Rockford, Illinois, First Free Church of Rockford, Illinois, very similar to Austin Oaks. And Pastor Brandon and I met at a conference, and uh, we became fast friends. But I do have one bone to pick with Brandon. 
I did not know it was Memorial Day weekend that I was agreeing to when he asked me to preach. And I want to tell you the travel coming here was a nightmare. It took me 15 hours to get here from Colorado Springs. And when I went to go get my rental car, I had to wait in line for two hours to get my rental car. It was crazy, y'all. So Brandon owes me, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask him to speak over Labor Day weekend, (laughs) and I'm going to give him the wrong church address. I'm going to send him to the Mormon church just to get him back. (laughs) I'm just kidding, though. Um, It's an honor to to preach to you. I also, knew your, I also know your previous pastor, Rob, wonderful man, and I've known about your church for many years. I've even been here before. I attended a free church conference here a number of years ago, and I thought, you know, one day I'd like to preach at that church, and today that wish has come true, and uh, you guys are also blessing me because I'm going to go get to see my brother, and we're going to spend Memorial Day together, and we're going to eat 10 pounds of barbecue together, and we're going to have fun And also, I got to see the Tyson family. Uh, It's a family here that is really family to me. Um, I grew up with a man named Mike Tyson, not the fighter, but some of you may know the Austin Mike Tyson. Mike used to be the co-owner of the Austin Gun Club. He and I grew up together. He's my oldest friend. We were in first grade together. We played football together all of our lives uh, as young people. Uh, He was a precious man. He died a few years ago of cancer, and his family is here today. I won't make them stand up, but would y'all welcome the Tyson family to our church today? Wonderful, wonderful people. So I want to thank you. And uh, by the way, uh, I think it was actually God's plan that I was delayed getting here because it's a little side story, but I, I stood in line, when I was standing in line to get my car, there was a guy in front of me in the line, and he had tattoos all over him, like all over his body. He had the sleeve tattoos, and he, he had shorts on, he had tattoos on his legs, and he was kind of cool looking. You, you know, he looked like he'd had a rough life, but he was a cool looking guy, muscular guy, and uh, eventually, after about an hour of standing in line, we started a conversation with each other. And as we were talking, I was like, I really like this guy. And so I said, what do you do for a living? Why are you uh, coming to Texas? And he said, well, I'm I'm, uh, in a rock band. I mean, this guy was an actual rock star. That's what he did for a living. And I looked his band up. His band is called the Ghost Inside or Ghost Inside. Trust me, it's not the Holy Ghost Inside, but that's the name of the band. And... uh, they're an acid rock. I mean, hard rock, like to where you can't even understand what they're saying. Like, you know, and the guy's like, you don't even know what he's saying, right? But they've been around for like 20 years. Like, this is a pretty big man. They've got a following, and he's making a very good living. And it just so happened I'm standing next to this acid rock bass player. And so, uh, you know, I was fascinated by this. And so I was asking him all kinds of questions. I said, you know, what's, do you have uh, trouble hearing? I mean, you're in an acid rock band. Has that hurt your, hurt your hearing? And he goes, no, I wear my earplugs, but our drummer, he's deaf in his left ear. So, you know, that theory was confirmed. And then uh, I asked him, you know, what do you like most about being a rock star? Like, this guy's a legit rock star. So what do you like most about it? He goes, I have traveled all over the world. He goes, you know, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. My mother never left the county that I grew up in. And I've been able to travel all over the world. I've seen all these sites. And I said, what do you like like least about being a rock star? And he said, it's really hard, dude. It's really hard on my family. It's hard on our families. And we just kept talking and eventually got around to, what do you do for a living, right? And I said, well, actually, I'm going to be on a stage myself this weekend. (laughs) And he said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. And I'm speaking at Austin Oaks Church. And he's like, cool, man, cool. You know, and he's kind of looking at me. And he said, you know, I used to go to church years ago, but I walked away from it. And I was like, you think? (laughs) But uh, I said, you know, we we talked a little more. And we started getting toward the end of the um, line. And we talked for like an hour. 
And I felt the spirit in me prompting me to share the gospel in some way. And this guy was a precious man, I want to tell you. He, he, had a, he wasn't your stereotype, you know, he was just a, a, he had a tender heart. And I said to him, his name was Jim, I said, Jim, um, how would you describe your spiritual state? And he goes, well, you know, I'm an agnostic, but I'm very spiritual. And I thought, that's an interesting answer, you know, because agnostics don't know if there's a spirit world or not. They're kind of, they don't, they just say they don't know, but, and yet he's saying he's very spiritual. So I said, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like, help me understand what you mean by that. And he said, well, this is going to sound strange, but I believe that everybody goes to where they believe they're going after they die. So for you Christians, I believe you're going to heaven. You know, for the Buddhists, I believe that they're going to nirvana. I believe that, that whatever you believe, is, that's what's going to happen. And I said, so you kind of have a Dr. Strange multiverse theology, right? And he goes, yeah, I love Dr. Strange. He goes, I haven't seen the movie yet. I go, I took my son to it. It's pretty good. You got to go see it. And so we talked about that for a little while. And then I felt prompted to tell my story to him. And I said, Jim, you know, I grew up in uh, southern Louisiana. And... When I was 13 years old, my dad was killed in a car accident, and it devastated me. And I became very angry at God. And I walked away from God, and I embraced violence, and I started fighting, and uh, I, I drank heavily. I was getting drunk every weekend, and I embraced the Mardi Gras lifestyle, and I was sleeping around with girls, and I lived an immoral life out of anger to God. And then when I was about 18 or 19 years old, I, to this day, I still don't know how this happened, but I got roped into going on a youth retreat with a Baptist church in my town, and, and I knew the kids in that, re, that uh, group, and I didn't even like those kids. But somehow, through the providence of God, I went on that youth retreat, and I met, I told them, I met the person of Jesus Christ. And I met God. And I realized that he loved me. And my message is that God is real and his name is Jesus and he loves you. That's the message of my ministry. And the reason that we started Renovation Church is the whole con con uh, concept of uh, God renovating our lives. He did that to me. You know, when you get an old piece of furniture that's kind of in today, buying old furniture and then you... You redo it, but you leave all the scars and the nicks on the top of the table, and then you varnish it, and it's cool. The scars are still there, and that's what God does to us. We are broken people. Our nation is broken right now. But when we turn to the Lord, he takes all of that brokenness, and he makes something beautiful out of it, and our greatest shame becomes our greatest glory in his hands, amen? And so I told him all of that, and then we had to go get our cars, and, and he goes, you know, Rusty, really glad I met you, man. I mean, you made this line, it just was like this line wasn't even here. Time just went like that. Thank you, it was a delight. And I said, it was a delight to talk to you, Jim. And he said, I'm gonna look you up and I'm gonna to listen to you online. And I said, and you may just find your way back to Jesus. And he said, yeah, I may. And he gave me a big old hug. So how cool is that? Let's give God a hand for that, amen? Yeah. So, all right, let's get into our topic this morning. I wanna begin by asking you, have you ever in your life attending church, have you ever experienced a church fight? Have you ever experienced a great big church fight? How many of you have ever experienced a church fight? If you've been in church long enough, the chances are very high that you'll experience a church fight. Some of you have experienced a church split. Some of you have experienced a worship war, war over styles of worship. That's often where church fights happen, by the way. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, pastor of the 1800s, the great preacher, referred to his uh, 
worship department as the war department because they were having fights, worship wars, back in his day. And it makes sense. The enemy's going to destroy a church. He's going to hit the heart of it, which is worship. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced church fights over the color of the carpet or uh, why does that group get to have that room and my group doesn't get to have that room? Church fights. When I was growing up in the Deep South, uh, I went to a traditional Baptist church. We attended a traditional Baptist church, and uh, it was a wonderful church. I mean, the people there were outstanding people. But four times a year, that wonderful church turned into a dysfunctional church. And can you guess what those times were? The church business meetings. You know, I grew up uh, enjoying, I was a big fan of pro wrestling. And I would watch Hacksaw Jim Dugan and Junkyard Dog and all of these wrestlers. I got to tell you, as a kid, I enjoyed going to church business meetings as much as watching pro wrestling. Because I got to see all of the adults, you know, the deacons, and sometimes even my parents get into fights at these things, and it was very entertaining. You know, it was like watching Hulk Hogan and Super Flash Snooker, you know, when the deacons went after each other. Church fights. I've been a, a pastor, I've been in ministry of some kind for over 30 years, three decades of ministry experience, and Unfortunately, I've seen my share of church fights. My favorite uh, one as a pastor was over Santa Claus. I went to a church one time, and before I got there, they had a business meeting, and the agenda item was Santa Claus, and there was a group that wanted to ban Santa Claus from the church. And this became a rigorous uh, church fight, and they won. At that church, you were not allowed to say Santa Claus, you were not allowed to reference him, you were not allowed, certainly not allowed to have any images of Santa Claus in the church. And I become the pastor of the church, and one Sunday I get up uh, in front of the congregation and I said, it was, it was toward Christmas, I said, I want us to reconsider Santa Claus. I want to invite Santa Claus back into the church. And you could have heard a pin drop, y'all. And I said, hear me out. You guys realize that there's a real person behind Santa Claus. There's a real historical figure. His name was St. Nicholas. And he lived around the 300s AD, and he was a great man of God. Uh, he was known for rescuing children from human trafficking. He saved kids from prostitution, hence the association with children. He was an intellectual giant. He actually sat on the famous Council of Nicaea that formed uh, the Nicene Creed, which is the, one of the pinnacle documents of the early church. It articulates biblical theology. It defines what it means to be a Christian. The Nicene Creed is part of the um, statement of faith of Renovation Church. It's also part of your statement of faith. It heavily influenced your statement of faith. And, uh, St. Nicholas took part in writing that. And, and I said, uh, and, and even the symbolism of the current Santa Claus, is all, it's all based on Christianity. The red coat represents the blood of Christ. The white sleeves represent uh, the fact that through the blood of Christ we can be forgiven and our sins are white as snow. Our hearts are white as snow. So I said, let's invite Santa Claus back in and tell the story of St. Nicholas and the God that he so loved. And we had another boat, and I won, and Santa Claus came back to town, and we were taken off with a naughty list. Church fights. Church fights, they're not pleasant. Here's a question. What was the, what was the first big church fight in the history of the church? Let's look at that today. I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And we're going to learn three insights that can help us today. The first insight, if you're taking notes, is where there is change, there is conflict. Where there is change, there is conflict. 
This is a great principle to know in most, if not all, areas of life. For example, if you own a business and you change your product line, you can expect that some of your customers are not gonna like that. Oh yeah, I got an amen over there. Some of your employees aren't gonna like that. Happens in families as well, you think about it. When do you really have family fights? It's often after a change. I remember my wife, Judy, and I just have an outstanding wife. I've been married for 32 years next month. Can you believe that? That's hard to believe. I can't believe I've been married for 32 years and I'm only 35. I mean, it's, it's crazy. But I married a superstar. I married up. I tell my, uh, I tell my football team that I married Wonder Woman. She's just a beautiful, wonderful person. I'm very blessed. If she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. But anyway... <laughs> Our first five years of marriage, it was just Judy and me. We didn't have children for five years after we got married. Blissful, wonderful years, you know. We could do whatever we want. We could go out to eat, you know. And then we had our first child. Judy got pregnant with our precious Olivia, our oldest daughter. And at the time, I was going to Dallas Seminary. And for those of you who don't know, I know some, there's some association with Dallas, uh, with this church, but uh, Dallas Seminary is a very rigorous school. It's one of the most intense graduate programs of any type in the country. Uh, just to give you an idea, to get a master's in theology requires four years full-time, over 120 hours. They require you to, to uh, learn biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek, so that you can sight-read it. And it was, it was like going to a really intense law school, very stressful for a young couple, and I was studying all the time, and I would stay up till two in the morning studying, and one of the ways that I cope with stress, I'm gonna get real with you guys, it's a weakness of mine, but one of the ways that I deal with stress is I like to eat. Anybody else out there, can, can you relate to that? I like to eat. I can tangibly feel the stress going away. And the, the more unhealthy the food, the less stress, right? And so I got in this terrible pattern at Dallas Seminary, um, and I'm an old offensive lineman, you know, so I, eat, I still sometimes try to eat like, or don't try to eat, I just find myself eating like that. But I got into this pattern where I started making homemade pies for myself. So I would make a, like a blueberry pie, and I would go to the grocery store, and I would get a half gallon of Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream, praise Jesus, right? Another reason I love Texas, y'all invented Bluebell ice cream. Bluebell ice cream tells you two things. Number one, God is real, and number two, he's good. Amen? <laughs> so I would get, I would make myself a pie, and I would eat that whole pie in one sitting with half of that container of Bluebell ice cream. And I did it twice a week, okay? Yeah, don't look at me like that. <laughs> Well, when we were, when it was just me and Judy, it didn't bother Judy that much. You know, slowly I'm getting larger, but it didn't bother her that much. But when we had that baby, something changed, you know? And she'd look at me, why are you sitting on your rear end over there eating pie, and why don't you come over here and help me? And there was conflict. And we experienced conflict that we had never experienced before, and we worked it out. And I no longer eat two pies a week anymore. And we figured out having kids, and we went on to have three more. So we've, we have four kids, three girls and a boy, a lot of drama in my life. But change brings with it conflict, right? Mark Twain said that the only person that likes change is a baby with a dirty diaper. So whether it's finances or family or listen to me, even church, when you go through conflict or when you go through a change, Conflict is coming. It's helpful to know that. It's helpful to know that, especially those of you who are leaders. You need to know that conflict is baked into the pie <laughs> of change. Take a look at Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So here we have a conflict. This is the first big fight 
in the original Greek that this was written, that phrase complained against has the idea of secretly talking against. Have you ever had somebody talk bad about you? Kind of behind your back? Can be very painful. Also has the idea of holding a grudge. Murmuring is a good translation. I believe the King James translates it, murmured against. So the Hellenistic Jews among them were complaining against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what's going on here? This is the world's first church, the Jerusalem church. Pastor Chad talked to you about it a couple of weeks ago. At this time, uh, the Jerusalem church was having enormous success, miraculous success. The Jerusalem church that God established, when we look at it, we're actually looking at our spiritual ancestors. We are the direct spiritual descendants of this church. Austin Oaks Church would not exist. We would not be sitting here today if it wasn't for the Jerusalem church and what God did through it. And it was incredibly effective. For example, uh, it had all kinds of miracles. People were getting healed. Signs and wonders were happening everywhere at this church. God was definitely putting his stamp of approval on this body of believers. And one of the greatest miracles was the was the quickness or how rapidly this church grew. Very quickly, it went from a group of 12 very discouraged disciples who were devastated by the crucifixion of Christ. It went from those guys to tens of thousands of people. Some scholars have estimated that the Jerusalem church grew so big that it exceeded 100,000 people, if you can imagine that. And it threatened the Roman world. The empire took notice. Eventually, it defeated the empire. Eventually, the Roman empire turned Christian because of the movement of the church in Jerusalem. But with that growth, with that tremendous growth, came change. And with change, what happens? You have conflict, even with good change. First part of the verse says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. So they're growing, growing rapidly. Change is happening. It happened rapidly. And what else happened? Conflict. Now, what was their conflict? What was the first church fight? Well, there were two groups of people in this church that kind of got into it with each other. You could call them different ethnicities or subcultures. One group was the Hellenistic Jews and the other was the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were Jewish people who had accepted Christ as their savior and they joined the church, but they had been raised in Greek culture. So they were Hellenists. The word Helen means Greek and it has the connotation of Greek uh, and uh, identifying as Greek and speaking Greek. I'm a guy who lives in Colorado, and I've, you know, I went to the University of Colorado, so I've lived a good por- portion of my life in Colorado, and people, citizens of Colorado, call themselves Coloradans, or sometimes Colorado natives. When people ask me about who I am, I don't use that term. I say I'm a Cajun because I grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I was born in New Orleans. My dad spoke Cajun French. Uh, During football season, Judy and I, we put on the LSU Tigers every Saturday and Judy cooks gumbo, and it's awesome. (laughs) That's our identity. But I live in a neighborhood where everybody looks like me. We're the same race, but we have different identities as to, you know, you could call it an ethnicity. That's what was going on here in Jerusalem. They had Greek Jews and they had Hebraic Jews. Greek Jews were Jews, but they identified as Greeks or Hellenists. Hebraic Jews were the other group. They had also accepted Christ, but their identity was 
Hebraic, Jewish. They spoke Hebrew. They were traditionally Jewish in their identity. And the Greek Jews were complaining against the Hebraic Jews. Apparently, there, were, there was some favoritism going on here because the Hebraic Jewish widows were getting more food than the Greek Jewish widows. And a conflict arose. They had a, uh, a ministry, a food pantry ministry at the Jerusalem church. Again, thousands and thousands of people. And in that culture, if, you, if your husband died, it often left the family destitute. So the Jerusalem church had a food pantry. And uh, they would give food to these widows. And there was some favoritism going on. It was a fight. You could call it a food fight. And you know, food fights are still going on today in churches. I've seen them as a pastor. Matter of fact, I read an article not too long ago in the Christian Post, and uh, it documented a, a ferocious fight that broke out at a church when the leadership decided to uh, get rid of donuts and coffee and replace it with a smoothie bar. And uh, some of the people were so upset, they were throwing things at the pastors and the leadership at one of the business meetings, and as I read this, you know, I believed it, and then at the bottom it says, this isn't a true story, it's a satire, but I thought to myself, why did I believe it? Because I've seen stuff like that. That's totally believable. It's ridiculous, but it's believable. I've seen people get agitated all, for all kinds of things in church. See, I've seen people get angry over stripes in the parking lot or the way the church logo looks, or the church's name. Every time you change the name of a church, there's gonna be a big conflict. If an old painting that some family's grandmother painted in 1945 gets moved to another wall, you're gonna have conflict. And I actually have seen um, conflicts over donuts and coffee a couple of times at a couple of churches. You know, and it's often generational. The older crowd likes the donuts. Younger crowd wants everything gluten-free. Some people actually want fruit before church. I mean, come on. I mean, that's a little strong. <laughs> As for me, I vote for the donuts. <laughs> Don't you love a warm donut with milk or coffee? I'm getting hungry right now. Why am I going off on this? Anyway, the point is, it's not unusual for conflict to break out after change, and it helps to know that. And if you're facing a big change in your life, good or bad, you're moving to a new home, you're getting a new job, maybe you're getting married, maybe you're starting college. If it's a big change, expect some conflict. It's part of the human condition and so the question is, what do you do with the conflict? What do you do with those types of challenges? And that's the second aspect, or the second insight, and that is come up with a strategy. Come up with a strategy. Strategies shorten the distance between a challenge and a solution. Strategies shorten the distance between a challenge and a solution. What did the early church do with this first uh, big Conflict. Well, they didn't ignore it. They didn't just sit back and hope that it would go away. Problems don't usually just go away. They came up with a strategy. Take a look at verses 2 through 5. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. And this proposal, this strategy, pleased the whole group. I mean, that's a miracle right there. Everybody in church was pleased, hallelujah. Or pleased, hallelujah. I'm a pretty simple man. And I like things to be just kind of brought down to the bottom line. And someone once said that most challenges can be described with distance. So let me give you an example. Let's say, 
Let's say, I mean, it's probably true for some of you today. Let's say that you're running out of clean clothes right now. And you got a pile of laundry this high. Teenagers, you got a pile of laundry this high in your closet right now. You have a challenge. You're running out of clean clothes. And your solution is over here, okay? Now, laundry's not that big of a problem. You know, the distance from the challenge to the solution, that distance is the size of your problem, okay? And so if you want to reduce the size of your problem, the way you do that is you come up with a strategy. And a strategy moves the challenge closer to the solution. So in the case of the pile of dirty clothes, parents are going to love me at the end of this service, but at the, in the case teenagers of your dirty clothes, here's an idea. Set up a laundry day once a week and make it fun. Cook yourself a pie. Get some bluebell ice cream. Watch the Johnny Depp trial. Make it fun. And use that strategy and you will reduce the size of your problem. The question is, what will eliminate the problem at least or at least make it smaller, and the answer is a strategy. Strategies shorten the distance between the challenge and the solution. Now, some of you have some big problems here this morning. Like some of you, your marriage is in trouble. Your challenge is that your marriage is in serious trouble. Your wife doesn't like you. You don't like your wife. And the solution is like a mile over there. You've got an enormous problem. What do you need to do? It doesn't matter the size of the problem. You come up with a strategy. For example, here's a strategy you might want to try. Pick three people, three couples in your life that are older couples. Couples maybe from the classic service, okay? People that absolutely adore each other, who have been married for like 50 years, and they have a great marriage. And you ask them if they'll mentor you for a season. And meet with one of those couples, have them rotate, meet with them once a week, every week. And you just go and ask questions. It's not a time to fight, it's just a time to ask, how in the world do you guys love each other this much after 40 years? What did you do? And I can tell you those couples have been through what you've been through. A lot of them have been through challenges that you have no idea. You know, older saints, people who have been walking with God for a long time, our country doesn't honor the elderly anymore. Older saints know a thing or two. They've been through some stuff. Find some people like that, and then maybe find a good marriage book and say, look, we're going to read 10 pages a day, and every morning at 7 o'clock we're going to get up, and we're going to have coffee together, and we're going to talk for 10 minutes about what we learned from that book. Now, that may not solve your problem, but it will advance your marriage, and it will make the size of your problem smaller. And you keep doing that, and you can save your marriage. Come up with a strategy. The early church came up with a strategy. They said, you know what? This food distribution thing to these widows, it's not good. They had a legitimate problem here. And so the 12 apostles, they had their hands full. Remember, tens of thousands of people going to the church. And they said, it wouldn't be good for us to stop preaching. I mean, we, we can't add more to our plate. And we, we're leading all of this prayer and we're doing all this ministry we're not going to take it upon ourselves. Let's appoint seven men, and the text says, who are full of the spirit and wisdom to take on this problem. And that phrase, full of the spirit and wisdom, has the idea of listening to the Holy Spirit, walking with God. These are men that are walking close to God, and they're full of wisdom, which means they're get-it-done people. Let's give that to these men. So they gave, they picked seven men, and the strategy worked. Text says in verse 5 that it pleased the whole group. Uh, many scholars believe that this is, the, this is the first set of deacons the church has ever 
seen because the word for serve there is the, is, comes from the word deacon. In Greek, deacon means server. And that strategy eliminated the problem. Maybe you have a problem today, and it's enormous. You got a wayward child. Man, that's agonizing. Child that's walked away from Jesus and is on a self-destructive path. I've lived through that. It's a nightmare. You can't sleep at night. Maybe that's you this morning. Or maybe you have an elderly mother who's dying. Maybe you don't have enough money to pay your bills right now, or maybe you have relatives that have been directly affected by the shooting in Uvalde. Church this size, that wouldn't surprise me, or somebody online. Devastating. Maybe you have a devastating problem. May I make a suggestion? Find some people who really know God well in your life and ask them to give you advice. Ask them to pray for you and give you advice. And then get away somewhere for a while. Go away somewhere that's beautiful, that feeds your soul, and bring your Bible and bring a journal and cry out to Jesus. Cry before him. We see that all over the Bible. I call it messy prayer. Cry, weep before him. And ask him to speak to you. And read your Bible. And whatever you think he's saying to you through all of that information that you've gathered, write it down and come up with a strategy. And then do that strategy and see if it won't help you with your problem. Final insight from our passage is serving is the pathway to greatness. Serving is the pathway to greatness. Take a look at the end of verse five and on into verse seven. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There's a lot in these verses. For example, the strategy worked as evidenced by verse 7, a number of the number of disciples increased rapidly. They even reached a large number of Jewish priests. That's a miraculous thing. Very successful. But I want you to notice the names of the men in the list, these deacons, so to speak. Two stand out. Stephen, who is described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That means he trusted God in his life. He walked close to Jesus. And he was full of the Spirit. He, that means he was controlled by the Spirit of God. He had a direct line because he walked close to God. God spoke to him in real time. Stephen went on to become a great man. He became a great preacher. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 7, he preaches one of the greatest sermons the world has ever seen. And he went through the entire Old Testament and pointed that every verse, pointed out that every verse points to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It was a masterful sermon, and eventually he is martyred for the faith. He gives his life for our faith, for Jesus Christ, and he becomes a hero of the faith. Philip is mentioned as well. Philip goes on to do amazing things also. For example, Philip led so many people to Christ after this that scholars refer to him as the evangelist, Philip the evangelist. In other words, these men became great. And how did their greatness begin? It began by waiting on tables, by serving widows in the food pantry. If you want to have a great life, 
If you want to make a real difference, find someone to serve. Humble yourself. Be a humble person. If you want to go high, begin by going low. And the reason for that, this is a theme we see throughout the Bible, God likes humility. Book of James. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Says that over and over again. Proverbs chapter 3 says the same thing. God works in humility. But I also think one of the reasons is that humble people are real people. You know, they're not fake. Prideful people aren't enjoyable. I don't like being around prideful people. They're always trying to live up to some image or project an image. But humble people respect you, and they think you're important. And those people advance in life. As I mentioned, I'm a football coach. I coach football at, it's kind of my ministry to the community, and I coach at Palmer Ridge High School in Monument, Colorado, which is a suburb of uh, Colorado Springs, and it is a dominant football program. Over the last five years, we've gone to the state championship four times, and we've won three of them. And there's a secret to our program that's really not a secret to anybody who's coached football, and that is, if you go to the, to the coaches and you ask, what is the most important football unit on a team. I'm not talking about the MVP. I'm not talking about an individual player. I'm talking about the unit that is most important on a football team, and they will all, without exception, say it's the offensive line. The offensive line is the most powerful unit on a team. And uh, they're the most important. You can have a great quarterback, but if nobody's blocking for him, he's dead. You have a great running back, nobody's blocking for him, he's not going anywhere. And that's easy to prove. Just ask Troy Aikman, Dallas Cowboys back in the 90s, they won all of those Super Bowls. Troy Aikman will tell you without hesitation it was because of our offensive line. Uh, Dallas had arguably the greatest offensive line in the history of all football with those teams in the 90s. But here's the thing about offensive linemen, and I really like this because they're, they're often a delight to work with. Offensive linemen have a, have a certain way about them. They have a certain persona or orientation. They're usually very humble. They're the biggest guys on the field. They're the most powerful guys on the field. I mean, last year we had a guy, he's playing for Michigan this year. He got, he got a full scholarship to Michigan. He was, I think, 6'6", six, 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 280 pounds. And he was an average size for our line one year. But those guys tend to be humble, and they have a very protective instinct. And they don't care if they get any glory. Nobody's walking around with an offensive line lineman's number. Uh, you don't buy those jerseys when you go to a Dallas game. Uh, it wouldn't even surprise me if everybody in this room didn't know one name of an offensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys. And they are okay with that. They prefer that. They're humble, but they're fierce, and they're powerful. And Anthony Evans, who is the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, he has said this before. He noticed that offensive linemen, in order to be successful, have to go lowest on the team. When they get in their stance, that's one of the things we train them, you got to stay low in order to have leverage against your opponents. If you want to be powerful in life, if you want to be great, be an offensive lineman. Go low. If you want to go high, go low. And God will bless your life. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you so much for Austin Oaks Church and all that this church has done in the community all these years. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first evangelical free church in Austin, Texas. And this church has a great tradition of pastors. The pastors I've met today, outstanding. Pastor Brandon, wonderful man of God. Pastor Rob, what a ministry he's had in Austin. Thank you for what you're doing, what you have done, what's coming 
in this church. I pray that you would continue to bless this church. Lord, it's Memorial Day weekend. We want to thank you for the lives of all who have fallen for freedom. We sit here today being able to worship freely because of the men and women who protected our shores. We thank you for them. We honor them today. And Lord, it's been a tough week for Texas. We grieve. We grieve with the families who experienced that shooting. I can't imagine, I can't imagine what they're going through. I pray for all the pastors there today. They had to get up and preach after that. And they gotta preach these funerals. I've preached the funeral of children. It's, it's agonizingly painful, devastating. I pray that your spirit would fall on them and you would anoint them and give them supernatural power. They're gonna need it. Those families are gonna need a supernatural touch from you. They need a vision of their children in heaven. I pray you give it to them. And I pray for our nation. The answers that are being thrown out by politicians, politicians are not the answers. They don't have the answers. The answer to our country is that we've walked away from Jesus and we need to turn back to you. We need you back. Turn our hearts back to you, Lord. Cause a revival in our nation. You've done it several times. You've given us several great awakenings where the majority of the country turned back to you or big chunks of the country turned to you and it's one of the reasons that we're still standing today. I pray that I pray that people would know that you're real, that you love them, that you hold the path of life. Save our family, save our nation, heal our nation. And I pray that you would be glorified. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the mighty Son of God. And all of God's people said,